Welcome to the CTSNet podcast. My name's Joel Dunning and we've got a packed edition for you today. So we're talking RCTs. I'm going to start with three thoracic RCTs. We're going to then move on to four very exciting cardiac RCTs and I've got a very special guest, uh, the PI of not one but two of the RCTs. We're then going to talk a bit about the future of conferences and finally a really shocking story about surgical staplers. So stay tuned for this CTSNet podcast. So before I talk about the four cardiac RCTs, I want to talk about three really interesting thoracic RCTs. And I'm delighted to say that this week, uh, the Mars 2 trial in the United Kingdom has completed successfully its recruitment. So what is Mars 2? Well, some of you might recall Mars 1. Mars 1 was a randomized controlled trial for for mesothelioma patients. They randomised patients with surgically treatable, in inverted commas, mesothelioma to uh, extrapleural pneumonectomy uh, or conservative treatment. Such a controversial area and uh, the MARS-1 trial showed an excess mortality with EPP and pretty much killed dead that operation in, in Europe and uh, and in Britain. Really controversial. There was quite a high operative mortality in that surgical group, but uh, but uh, people really have moved on to this second operation, extended pleural decortication for mesothelioma. So you've got somebody with mesothelioma, leave the lung in, but take out all that mesothelioma off the parietal pleura and the visceral pleura, take it out the fissures and hope they do better. And that's what Mars 2 is. Professor Eric Lim and his colleagues at the Brompton uh, have done this fantastic study uh, that randomizes people that everybody gets chemo and then you're randomized to EPD or not. They have achieved 328 patients. Close this week. Fantastic job, everybody. Amazing. So when we're going to hear the results, well, we'll probably hear some initial early intraoperative and, uh, and in-hospital results maybe in the next three to six months. And actually, the, the final results might only take two to four years because, remember, mesothelioma is a horrible condition. So well done, everybody. Fantastic. Great job. And look out for that amazing study. It really is going to set the whole treatment of mesothelioma for the next 10 years. Moving over to lobectomies and the two studies we're really all desperate to see. Uh, the first one is the terribly named CalGB14503, uh, or the far better named NASA Altorki study. So this, remember, is the study of randomizing patients who are pretty fit but got small tumors to two centimeters of two centimeters or less to lobectomy or subloba resection. It was set to try and give us the answer. What is better for these tiny tumors? Do you have to take the lobe out or not? Or can you do a subloba resection? This has been going on for a long time. This started in 2007 and it's taken 10 years to recruit. But it did recruit. It recruited 697 patients, which is brilliant. And half of those were lobectomy. And out of the 340 subloba resections, it turns out that half of those, you're allowed to do a wedge resection or a segmentectomy. And actually half of them got wedge and half of them got segmentectomy. Remember in those days most operations were open, but that wasn't the point of this study. Uh, the point is who lasts longest, who lives the longest. Um, 
we are desperate to know the results. So, so the the in hospital results have been published, and they're linked in the show notes. Uh, and they show no difference in anything really. 90-day deaths were six deaths in the lobe group and four deaths in the subloba. Any adverse event at all, 54% versus 51%. And I was actually surprised to see there was virtually no difference in air leak in hospital, 3% versus 1%, very low. So great surgery being done in this thing, but the million-dollar question, who is going to live longer? Will you live just as long having a sublobar section, and what will your lung function be? Well, any second now, these results are going to come out. Nasser Al-Turki said it would be the end of 2020. COVID's put paid to that. So we're expecting this really soon in 2021. And again, this is really going to change the face of thoracic surgery going forward. And the third thoracic study um, is an almost exact replica of uh, NASA's study in Japan. The Japan Clinical Oncology Group, at virtually the same time as NASA, did a similar study. Lobectomy versus segmentectomy, JCOG 0802. Uh, and they successfully recruited 1,108 patients uh, between 2009 and 2014. Now, the slight difference uh, in this is there were absolutely no wedge resections. We all know that uh, the Japanese are amazing segmentectomy surgeons, phenomenal technique. Again, very high incidence of open, but that wasn't the point of the study. Um, they published their intra uh, in hospital outcomes, and, and again, everything's just the same. Uh, grade 2 complications, Clavian Dindo 26 versus 27%. The air leak rate was actually 3.8% in lobes and 65 in segments, so more uh, air leak in the segmentectomies, uh, and, and on multivariate analysis it was the complex segmentectomies that were causing that. But what is the answer? Who lives longest in these groups? Remember they're all less than 2 centimetres, uh, and we don't know. Again, we expected this to come out at the end of 2020. COVID's put paid to this. So I would expect massive news in the world of segmentectomy uh, right at the start of 2021. So those are the thoracic studies. Let's move on to cardiac surgery. And a study that has really taken my eyes, a study that's now out for recruiting. Uh, they're going around three countries, UK, Australia and New Zealand, uh, to recruit to the Easy AS study. What is this? Uh, this is a randomised control trial of early valve replacement in severe but asymptomatic aortic stenosis. Don't you want to know the answer of this? How many times have you seen a patient that's got severe AS but you cannot get symptoms out of them? You know, you try your hardest but they can't tell you any symptoms. They're absolutely fine, doctor. And you know they've got a severe valve and you know when you do the operation it's going to be awful in there. And yet the guidelines say do not operate, just keep watching. Uh, so this is going to hopefully sort this out. This is a brilliant study. Um, the... It's centred in Leicester, Professor Jerry McCann and Graham Hillis. They have got £2.7 million allocated to them for this study. And wait for it, they want to recruit 2,844 participants, randomised to surgery or active watching. Uh, and who are the patients going to be? Well, anybody. It's not just an elderly or frail patient. This is anyone. So somebody could be 55 years old and an asymptomatic severe AS, and you can get them randomized into surgery. So this is going to be really exciting. It'll take a long time to recruit. Uh, it's doing an initial 
200 patients from 20 centers to just make sure it works. But uh, what a great study, great job, really exciting. Get in contact with them if you want to join the study. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of that. And that's good news for aortic valves. It's probably the first good news aortic valve surgery's had for a long time. But if, uh, if we can operate on the asymptomatics as well with great outcomes, then, then you know more people will come to have a good, long, durable operation. Let's talk about a really controversial RCT that's uh, coming up. Uh, I had the chance to talk to Pat McCarthy from Northwestern Memorial at the SDS about this study that he's proposing and that he has got funding for and he's out for recruitment. What is it? It's called the MitraClip Repair MR Study. Um, it's sponsored by Abbott Medical and, uh, and it's a per percutaneous MitraClip device or surgical mitral valve repair in patients with primary mitral regurg who are candidates for surgery uh, or mitraclip. Now, who are the inclusion criteria? This is really, really important. So you've got to have severe MR. Um, it's got to be repairable uh, as determined by a surgeon and it's got to be suitable for a mitraclip. But uh, you are meant to be of increased risk. But what is the increased risk? So you've got to have an ejection fraction less than 60. You've got to have a PA pressure more than 50 uh, or uh, an end systolic uh, LVEST of less than of more than 40 millimeters. Sorry. So also the subject should be moderate surgical risk, 75 years of age, uh, or if younger than 75, the SDS score's got to be up above 2% mortality. Uh, now and then the outcome measure is going to be exactly what you expect. You know who lives longest or who has all-cause mortality, stroke, hospitalisation, uh, and uh, and who has long durable. Uh, cure of their of their mitral regurgitation. This was super controversial when this is proposed at the STS. A lot of people were saying this is far too fit a group of patients. You know, surely you should be going uh, for the very highest risk, or maybe you shouldn't even be engaging uh, in this study. And it feels a lot like uh, like the early days of of TAVI. But uh, but you know, we've got to support. Um, uh, randomized studies. Randomized studies give us the answers uh, to really important questions and we all want to know uh, what's the best operation for these patients, mitral clip or really good mitral repair. So well done uh, and let's look out for that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it should have kicked off by now and uh, primary completion date January, February 2024. So on this podcast, uh, talking all about uh, cool RCTs in cardiac surgery, I'm delighted to be here with Enoch Okoa. He's a consultant cardiac surgeon in Middlesbrough, and he's done two amazing RCTs. Uh, Enoch, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us about your two awesome uh, RCTs. <laughs> Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Um, so research trials in cardiac surgery are notoriously difficult to do. So I'm delighted to have been involved in two research trials recently. Uh, the first was called Maverick, and it was the first um, really large randomized control trial comparing minimally invasive aortic valve replacement versus conventional aortic valve replacement using a mini stenotomy approach. Uh, the mini stenotomy approach used was a manubrium limited mini stenotomy in this case, so the smallest possible mini stenotomy that you can do, uh, and necessitated femoral vein cannulation uh, for bypass. Uh, that was a large trial, 270 patients were randomised to the two groups and the primary outcome was red blood cell transfusion post-surgery. Uh, 
uh, as well as a number of key secondary outcomes, particularly the performance of the valves after surgery. I think there's always been a question about whether minimally invasive aortic valve replacement can be done as safely uh, and as effectively as conventional, um, uh, as using conventional stenotomy. So that was the purpose of this trial. So the trial recruited and uh, was published uh, in, in JAK. The main findings are in JAK uh, and they were published um, about eight months ago. The main findings were that minimally invasive surgery was just as safe as conventional surgery that you could use, uh, you could get the same hemodynamic uh, performance from the valves and that you could use the same sizes of valves uh, using both approaches. Importantly, there was no difference in red blood cell transfusion after the two operations. Um, although there were significant differences in the amount of, uh, of non-red blood cells transfused between the two groups. Uh, most of the other important outcomes, particularly length of stay, use of intensive care, uh, etc. were quite similar between the two groups. We also had a, an important health economic uh, comparison between the two groups uh, and we found that there was no difference with a, um, with a similar uh, quality uh, um, 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 between the two operations. So the main findings are published in JAK, as I say, the rest of the findings are published in BMJ Open and that will be published in the next few days and so you can read uh, both articles. And I think both articles uh, essentially reassures that minimum invasive aortic valve replacement is a really good operation. It does have some advantages, um, and, but those are probably limited to non-red blood cell transfusion. Great. Yeah, it's an amazing study. I think it recruited on time and on budget. And also you the surgeon either did mini or stenotomy, didn't they? So That's correct. That... So one of the key things about surgical trials is how you co cope with expertise. And in, you, in, in, in a Maverick trial, we coped with it by making sure that all the surgeons who took part were experts in both operations. And so the same patients were randomised to operations rather than to surgeons. Yeah, so let's talk about your new exciting up-and-coming study, okay. uh, UK Mini Mitral. Okay, so UK Mini Mitral, so continuing on the theme, compares minimum invasive mitral valve surgery uh, via a small right anterolateral thoracotomy to conventional stenotomy for patients who are predominantly having mitral valve repair. Now, this, this topic has been one that we've wrestled with in the cardiothoracic community for, for quite a long time. Um, and it's quite clear that there's been quite variable uptake of mini-mitral surgery across uh, the globe. In the UK in particular, the uptake has been very, very low. Uh, something like 5 to 10% of patients uh, having mitral surgery have a mini-invasive approach. And that, that lack of adoption has basically been driven by the absence of data showing that it was safe and effective. And if you uh, couple that with some bad experiences that surgeons have had, there's been a, a real sort of cloud over mini mitral surgery in the UK. So this uh, trial, uh, which is a UK uh, multi-centre trial, is funded by the NIHR, which is the National Institute of Healthcare Research in the UK, um, to the tune of £1.6 million, pounds, uh, sets out to establish the safety, uh, efficacy, and, and to determine whether there are any advantages of minimum invasive versus conventional surgery. So how's it going? Uh, it's a difficult trial to run, you can imagine, because uh, as I said to you, one of the key things is you, you need to cope with expertise. And the way we've coped with expertise in, a min in, in this trial is different from the last one. So rather than run the same surgeon doing both operations, patients are randomised to two experts. So they're randomised to a minimally invasive expert, who is someone who has to have had a programme for at least a year, has done at least 50 operations with good outcomes, 
um, or a conventional expert who also meets defined criteria. And the trial steering committee adjudicates whether a surgeon is an expert or not. So you can imagine that that's quite challenging because patients not only have to agree to take part in the trial, but they have to agree to be randomised to a surgeon that they might not have met. But that, we think, is the best way to remove the issues around uh, the learning curve uh, and surgical expertise, which clouds most of the data in, in this field. But how many have you recruited and uh, so it's how close are you? Uh, UK Mini Mitral is near, nearly finished recruiting. We have about 20 patients left to recruit out of the 316 that we've set out uh, to do. So I imagine that UK Mini Mitral will be reporting in about 12 months' time. And, and we're all genuinely excited to know what it shows. Brilliant. Well, fantastic. I'm not sure there's many surgeons in the whole world that have done two amazing RCTs, and I'm guessing it's not going to be your last one. So thanks for joining us, and thanks for everyone at CTSnet. You're welcome. So moving on from RCTs, I thought I'd talk a little bit uh, about the conferences. As an outsider, we see these conferences going online to virtual, and you think, well, that must be just easier to organise. It must be just simple moving things across. And certainly, Yaks did an amazing job of their virtual conference, but don't be lulled into a false sense. Our societies are having a complete nightmare uh, with, with our conferences going online. EACS did a great job, but the, the companies absolutely hated it. Nobody went to the stands. The companies are not going to be giving our societies money for doing virtual conferencing. The STS is going to be virtual, the AATS is going to be virtual, and the amazing sponsorship we get from our conferences are not going to be there. So it's a really hard time. Ismix had an amazing conference book for May this year. It's going to be in Poland. Lech Walesa was going to be the speaker there. I mean, that's amazing. And they had to cancel. But they've got 200,000 quid uh, locked up with a hotel in Warsaw. They're thinking, you know, do we have it in June? But that means we've got to organise it now. Do we push it to September where it's going to be so congested? Do you have it in person? Do you have it virtual? Do you have it hybrid? If you have it hybrid, do you charge people attending virtually the same amount as people turning up in person? It's a nightmare. But the nightmare is the, fun the funding and the finances. Our societies are so important to us. They've, we've got to support them. They're real lifeblood for us. They keep us going. They keep us together. And, uh, and really, they're having such a hard time. So spare a thought for them. Uh, if you're asked to do something for them or support, uh, then give them your thumbs up. And well done, anybody that puts their hand up and says, yes, I'm going to join on the boards of directors or organising uh, our conference. It's such a lot of work, and it's so hard at the moment because nobody knows where we're going to be, even in three or four months, never mind a year's time. And finally, a completely shocking story. This I heard for the first time this week. There's been rumblings about this, but uh, my jaw has dropped. Surgical stapler lawsuits. Um, the FDA, uh, back actually a year ago now, um, released six million adverse events related to stapling uh, onto their website. It was trickled in and quite hidden in their website but actually people have got wind of this and uh, and in this FDA report there are there are a huge number uh, of uh, adverse related events so related to staplers a hundred thousand really serious events um, 41,000 significant stapler injuries 9,000 serious injuries and 360 deaths due to staplers uh, and what does this cause um, where they also say they have seen uh, the recall of 3.4 million staple firings. Um, 
for example, Ethicon in 2019 have withdrawn their intraluminal stapler. Uh, in 2019, Medtronic uh, withdrew a whole load of articulating tri-staple reloads due to missing components. Uh, in 2018, uh, and the endogia auto by Medtronic uh, due to injuries in patients and Ethicon, uh, the flex powered vascular stapler, stapler was withdrawn because staples weren't inserting fully when fired. This is a huge scandal that is going to brew and brew and go on. Um, I've actually heard on the grapevine that uh, the quite publicised sudden loss of stock due to the earthquake uh, by a certain company may not have been due to the earthquake at all. It may be a very convenient way to have got rid of some substandard stock. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year or two uh, we're going to see a lot more lawsuits. Maybe the costs are going to go up of staplers. Maybe staplers are going to become less available. So be very careful. Uh, watch out uh, and maybe read that story. I've posted it on the show notes uh, and certainly made my jaw drop. So that's all we've got for you to, uh, this week. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Please post some comments or let me know. Uh, if you've got anything exciting out there, I'll be very happy to uh, post it. And if you want to come on the podcast, just uh, drop us a line and I'll pop you on too. Thank you very much for listening. My name's Joel Dunning and see you next week.